Hi, and welcome to the first episode of the brand new CBP Cross-Border Podcast. If you live near the border, whether in Canada or the U.S., chances are you've encountered us. By us, I mean CBP, Customs and Border Protection. The guys in blue that look at your passports, ask you a few questions, and they hopefully tell you to have a good one and send you on down the road to wherever it is you're trying to go. Maybe shopping at the local outlet mall, maybe going to work or school perhaps, or you're coming back home from a visit to Toronto. Hopefully our encounter was brief. A momentary pause in your travel plans, and hopefully you felt right about our meeting. And hopefully we did too. But have you ever left feeling confused, wondering, why did they ask me that? Why are they so worried about oranges? What was that random exam they put us through? Was it really random? We get asked a lot of these same questions all the time. So we decided to try and clear up a few misconceptions. For this episode, I sat down with a public affairs liaison out of the Buffalo field office. I'm Aaron Bowker, Chief CBP Officer, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, Office of Field Operations. In an attempt to debunk some common border crossing myths. Yeah, absolutely. We get a lot of the same topics asked of us all the time. So this is a good way to, good way to cover them all at once. Last year, marijuana became legal in Canada. This has led to a huge increase in marijuana seizures from folks attempting to bring it back to the United States. But if marijuana was purchased legally in Canada and someone intends to bring it back to a state which has legalized it, well, isn't that okay? Well, this is, this is the hot topic of the last year. Canadian government legalized marijuana. So recreationally, you can now go into Canada and purchase marijuana and consume it legally. Regardless of what border state you are on, if the state has legalized marijuana, doesn't mean you can cross the border with it. Here in New York, recreational marijuana is not yet legal. However, we operate under federal law. So U.S. Customs and Border Protection, regardless of what the Canadian government has done, regardless of what the state government has done, is still going to seize that marijuana when you bring it back. Now, at a minimum, you could be facing a $500 fine if encountered with it, if you don't declare it. And if it's not legal in the state, you could be facing state charges. And depending on how much you bring back, you could be facing federal charges. So, In fiscal year 2018, CBP seized 590 pounds of marijuana across New York State ports of entry alone. So far, in fiscal year 2019, there's been more than 3,000 pounds seized. Officers are finding it daily. Some people go to great lengths to try and hide it, but despite their best efforts, it'll likely be found. Often. So Aaron's advice? If you're going to go up to Canada to consume recreational marijuana, make sure you're not bringing it back. Make sure you're not driving while impaired, and really check to make sure that what you've purchased or what you've consumed in Canada is not on your person coming back. You're guaranteed to see a law enforcement officer when entering the country, which just increases the chances you're going to get caught. You're going to get caught with it, so leave it in Canada. Admissibility. It's a term used often here in CBP. Admissible means I can allow you into the U.S. It only applies to foreign nationals, non-U.S. citizens. You're a U.S. citizen. You have the right to enter the country. Once you prove you're a U.S. citizen, we move on from that inspection. You're no longer inadmissible to the country because you're a U.S. citizen. You're admissible. Uh, then we just move on to, say, an enforcement end of the inspection. But you're a, a non-U.S. citizen, Canadian citizen, citizen of the U.K., where, you know, wherever you're from, um, there are grounds of inadmissibility that never go away. Such as criminal records. 
Many people that arrive at our border every day aren't necessarily thinking about that dumb thing they did when they were young that got them into a bit of trouble at the time. Some assume that surely after 10 or 20 years, those records must go away. Criminal convictions. If you were criminally convicted and it falls within the statutes of the Immigration Nationality Act, that inadmissibility never goes away. You may require a waiver for it for the rest of your life. So just because it happened 30 years ago doesn't mean it disappears. Um, even if you've received a pardon from a foreign government, if you were found inadmissible at one point, and then you receive a pardon, that inadmissibility is still there, it's still something we can see, and you would still require that waiver moving forward. So to sort of debunk that myth a little bit, regardless of whether you've had a charge 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 60 years ago, if you were inadmissible at some point because of that, that inadmissibility will always stay. Um, but there are ways to get waivers and things like that. So what if you just don't know if something you did in your past makes you inadmissible? You can actually come in to ask us questions. So if you're traveling into the U.S., pull up to the inspection lane and say, I'm here to talk to an officer in secondary about my admissibility. Um, I, I have some questions, and they will refer you inside, and you can actually talk to somebody who has a little more knowledge on it, and uh, they'll guide you in the right direction of, of what it is you need to enter if you are inadmissible, what steps you can take to, to enter in the future. It's not something we can do over the phone because we don't know who we're talking to. We don't know if the name you're giving us is correct. Um, this is all sensitive information you're talking about. This stuff that has to be done in person. You've got to present yourself. You've got to present your identification. We have to know who we're talking to, and we have to have a reason to actually look this stuff up. We can't just look it up randomly. We are asked all the time about food. Can we bring sandwiches, snacks, meat, fruit? Do we need to leave it all behind? Many people have the wrong idea about food crossing the border. I would say food crosses the border every day. Food can cross the border. Um, where we get into issues is if a person asks you if, you're if you have food and you say no, and you have food, um, agriculture does have fines for people who don't declare things that start at $300, so it can get quite pricey. There are food items within different cultures that are very popular that aren't allowed to come in regardless of where they're coming from. They could be banned by you know, U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, you know, there, there's some items like, say, sea cucumbers that are, you know, Fish and Wildlife doesn't allow in. We would turn them over to them. So those items are definitely banned. But as far as food items are concerned, to, to de debunk a myth, you, you, you pack a lunch for your kids and you're going on a one-week vacation, you've got a 12-hour drive ahead of you. And on the way, everybody's hungry, they stop at McDonald's, they grab you know, hamburger and, and, and a milkshake, there's, there, there's no problems with that. Thankfully, in today's information age, the answer is usually just a few clicks away. What you should do is go on to cbp.gov, um, click on what, what to expect. Um, that is going to give you a list of items. Um, there's also an agriculture section within our website that would give you a list of items of definitely what's banned and from where. So you can do that quick search on our website and kind of guide you on what it is, what's okay to bring, what's not okay to bring. If stuff is properly labeled and the, and the officers and agriculture specialists can see where it came from, then if it's allowable from that country, it's okay. So if beef is allowable from Canada and it's labeled that's Canadian beef, then you would be okay to bring it. If it's not labeled and we don't know where it came from, then odds are it's probably going to be seized. When driving to the border, you're going to see signs. 
There'll often be a sign letting you know you are approaching the border, for example. Then you may notice signs telling you where to stop and wait your turn to approach the officer's booth to have your travel documents ready. You might also notice a sign informing you of what you need to declare, such as money in excess of $10,000. So why do you have to declare it? Are you allowed to bring more than $10,000 into the U.S. or will it be confiscated? What's great is that you can bring as much money as you want. If you're lucky enough to have won the lottery, you know, and you want to travel with a million dollars to go on some big shopping spree, by all means, bring the money. You can travel with as much money as you want. The law is if you're traveling with over $10,000, you must declare it. You have to fill out a FinCEN form. So you can travel with as much as you want, but if it's over $10,000, tell us. It's a quick referral to secondary. You fill a form out on the way you go. But if you don't declare it, then it's subject to seizure. So be truthful about how much you have. Fill out the form on your way you go. Speaking of money, folks often pull up to my inspection booth, money in hand instead of their passports. Usually it's because they think they're pulling up to a toll booth. Some do believe a toll is required under the U.S. Let's clear that up as well. There's a user fee for commercial vehicles, but we don't collect tolls. So in the greater Buffalo Niagara region, because we're surrounded by water, we have all these bridges. The tolls to use the bridges are, are, are tolls from the bridge operator. But as a regular passenger or pedestrian driving into the country, there is not a toll issued by the government, no. So we are not a toll booth. You do have to stop for inspection. We do not collect tolls. Um, how, however, if you are a foreign national that requires additional immigration documentation, stamping your passport, I-94 issuance, and you do have to be referred inside for that. Um, there is a fee for that, but again, it's not a toll. So we're talking tolls here. Um, there is a $6 fee for that, that kind of documentation. But strictly speaking, tolls is not something that CBP or the U.S. government collects. Every time I've told a traveler that they'll have to pull over because they've been randomly selected by a computer for a secondary exam, I get the same reactions. There's usually a, a roll of the eyes, which is understandable. Often these are people that are not doing anything wrong. Random, they'll say. Sure it is. I ask Aaron to pull the curtain back a bit and describe what's going on. So yes, believe it or not, there is a random referral system. It is computer generated. It selects every so many cars or every so many people traveling in, say, through an airport for a random referral. That person who is selected or car is selected for a random referral goes over to a secondary inspection station just like anybody else and goes through a full inspection. The random referral system was developed to gauge the success of an officer-initiated referral. So say an officer sees something based on a hunch, based on their intuition, based on what they're seeing in a car, based on their interview, um, based on observational things that they're seeing with the person they're inspecting. Uh, maybe there's a want or a warrant. Uh, maybe someone declared something that has to be referred over to have it looked at. Um, that would be an officer-initiated referral. So the percentages of those officer-initiated referrals that result in a positive enforcement action, a seizure, an arrest, administrative action, like say in cases of immigration, 
should be higher than that of a random referral. So a random referral is truly random. It's just grabbing a random car or person out of everyone crossing that day. And your success rate or your positive enforcement actions should be higher on your officer-initiated referrals. So it's sort of a way to gauge are the officers referring over the right cars. And by referring over those right cars, it helps you gauge, are, 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 you, are you looking at the right things? Are you referring over the right things? Um, is there extra training that, that needs to take place? Um, but the success rate, historically, the success rate of officer-initiated referrals is significantly higher than that of a random referral. So we've seen over the years that the random referral, while it's a good way to gauge what's going on, the officer-initiated referrals have always been significantly higher than that of a random referral. And that's what we want to see. That's what we're looking for. The last misconception we hope to shed some light on in this episode has to do with our authority at the border. Occasionally, our right to ask certain questions of a returning United States citizen is called into question. So for starters, when you're going through an inspection, one of the most important questions we ask is state your citizenship. The reason for that is because it becomes legally binding when you say it. So just because you've handed me a passport and it shows it has a United States passport cover on it, we make you say it because we can legally hold you to it. Because believe it or not, there are people who hand us passports that are U.S. passports that were unlawfully obtained. Once you've established that you're a U.S. citizen and the officer believes it's lawful, we move away from the immigration questions. You've now established that you're admissible to the country. I, I know I can admit you. But there's all these other questions we have to ask to make sure that what's on your person in your car is not going to pose a threat as an illegal to come into the country. So we do have to ask other questions. So what I tell people is if you are honest and truthful and upfront and forthcoming, these, 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 these inspections are 60 seconds. It's when people don't answer questions where it becomes longer. I have to be able to convince, if I'm the inspecting officer, I have to make sure that what I'm admitting into the country is not a danger to the community, that, it, it, that, that everyone's kids that are walking through a mall are safe, um, that you're not bringing something illegal into the country, like say drugs, a handgun, um, or you know, proprietary information, illegal goods, anything like that. Uh, so in order, for, the way we do that as, an, as officers is we do an inspection. And the only way I can ascertain that is to ask questions. Usually three, four, five questions gives me a good baseline whether someone's telling me the truth or not, and on your way you go. So we do ask those questions because we are trying to get a gauge for whether everything in that situation, everything in that car, everything on that person is okay. The only way to do that through behavioral detection, listening to answers, is to ask those questions. And because officers ask thousands of questions a day, they have a pretty good guideline of what's truthful and what's not. So they're just trying to see where your questions fit into that. So contrary to popular belief, I've established your citizenship. You're now a U.S. citizen. We still have to ask you some questions to make sure that we are comfortable admitting whatever's in the car, what you could be carrying on your person into the country. How about our authority to search your car? We've all heard the term probable cause. This is what's required for most law enforcement to be able to search someone's bag or anything that's inside their vehicle. However, at the border, officers have what is called border search authority. We have the right under you know, border search authority to search things coming into the country without a warrant, a probable cause. 
that Border Search Authority gives us the right to search the car and the goods within the car coming into the country. And, and that could be, if we have reasonable suspicion to believe something is on your person, could give us the right to search your person as well. But Border Search so Authority applies at only at the border. But what about when you fly into an airport? It's not the border, right? Well, airports, as it turns out, are considered a functional equivalent of the border. It's a place where we, CBP, are encountering you for the first time. Even if you're already well within the interior of the U.S. Well, sure, because it's still, it's still that line of this is your first point coming into the country. Um, so you haven't been admitted yet into the country. So you've, you've, you've landed, and we're now deciding whether you're able to come into the country or not. Even with citizenship-wise, you're able to, but are the goods you're bringing in able to come into the country? So we have a right to search those goods to make sure everything's on the up and up. Seaports okay. as well, same thing. Coming off a cruise ship, first point of entry, that is the front line, that is the border. That does it for this episode of CBP Cross-Border Podcast. I hope we were able to provide some answers to some common questions, maybe debunk a myth or two. Make sure to follow and subscribe and check back soon for more episodes. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email us at bfocmo at dhs.cbp.gov.